The girl wrote a story. But how much better it would be if you wrote a novel, said her mother. The girl built a dollhouse. But how much better if it were a real house, her mother said. The girl made a small pillow for her father. But wouldn't a quilt be more practical, said her mother. The girl dug a small hole in the garden. But how much better if you dug a large hole, said her mother. The girl dug a hole and went to sleep in it. But how much better if you slept forever, said her mother. Hello, it's Steve, and this is another episode of Poetry Koan. The first time I ever had therapy, about 20 years ago, I remember walking out from the consultation feeling like a huge weight that I had perhaps perceived as immovable up to this point was now potentially shiftable through this magical process known as the talking cure. And what I remember very clearly as being the agent, the all-in-one industrial forklift come excavator that produced this effect in me, was a story. My story, that is. Or at least possessing all the details of my 30-something life I'd shared with this kind man with sensible shoes who then structured the information I'd given him with all the causal tools that narrative possesses and essentially retold my story back to me. My story produced through the fragmentation of recollection, retold it back to me in a way that made sense to him. Although, of course, he checked in with me to see if I agreed with how he had reframed the various pieces of information I'd given him, and I concurred. His version of my story made me sound like the hero of my life. I was a hero of my own life, not just a depressed schmuck talking to a bloke wearing sensible shoes. Stories, at least in the classical sense, always try to answer the question, how did we get here? How did we get to this? You will recognize, as a reader of novels and a watcher of films, that often a story will start with a tragic outcome. I'm thinking here of um, uh, Eugenides' Virgin Suicide or Donna Tartt's Secret History to think of two kind of novels that really do that very well. And then the rest of the book will take the reader and her series of burning questions through some kind of narrative of attribution. Well, this is how you, they, we, whoever got here. Capiche? This causal chain is an intrinsic part of language. Everything, including the words I'm writing here, works within its semantic machinery. So this happened, and then this, and this, and this happened because of that. Not because of this, but because of that. Why? Well, that's how my mind and yours sets up things for us to comprehend as stories. Throw the word why into the goulash of experience, and you will soon find a whole bunch of other words strung together with causal links, a narrative, which will then lead the narrative with inevitable surety to this outcome, the outcome you are trying to find a causal explanation for. And if a satisfying causal chain can be found, then relief 
If, however, we can't find an adequate to our minds story, a story that soothes and explains our current predicament, we experience a form of anxiety, a sense of not being safe in ourselves, in our lives, which is often how we feel in unstoried domains. COVID-19, I think, is a good example of this. Every breakdown or loss, both biological as well as political, must have had a reason for why it happened. And a lot of that reason searching, as you may have noticed, gets carried along on a tide of blame. My first therapist, in a bid to shape the fragmented shards of memory, experience and supposition I was laying at his feet, suggested a good number of distinct and manifest reasons for my existential suffering. And most of them centered around how crap my parents had been in terms of giving me the love, care and attention he felt, and I was certainly not going to argue with him, he felt that I deserved, that we both deserved. And of course we do. You can't argue with that, right? It's inarguable. And this, I remember, was music to my ears, for I suspected as much. Had not the very first poem I had decided to learn by heart at the age of 15 or thereabouts been Philip Larkin's, if this be the verse? Even though it's not part of my poetry liturgy, that sequence of poems I recite every day, I can still effortlessly, for it is familiar to me after all these years as my own breath, I can effortlessly just give you a quick rendition of it. So here we go. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. But they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old-style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. Even in that very first therapy session, myself and my therapist fleshed out the causal chain of my fucked upness. First and foremost on the shit list stood my parents, all three of them, biological mother and father and stepfather, as well as a handful of memorably traumatic experiences I'd lived through. Not all directly attributable to my parents, but in some way indirectly attributable to them, as anything one does or feels or experiences when in the care of an adult human being we call the parent, must morally find its way back to that person, right? Our parents look after us. And so if, if they drop the ball, they're not looking after us. That is the morality of blame. Just as every political leader is perceived as almost unquestionably culpable for the suffering of those who are most at threat from the various tragic consequences of COVID-19, there are many forms of unquestioned culpability that we adhere to in our culture. And I think it's fair to say that parents and pseudo-parents politicians often get pride of place in this blame metric. After a few sessions with this man with the sensible shoes, we decided to zone in on my fathers. There was plenty to blame my mother for too, but the fathers seemed to warrant for their misdeeds and drop balls the nub of it. I've noticed over the years with my own clients that men will often lay the burden of greatest blame at their father's feet and women quite often at their mother's, although of course there are exceptions to this rule. Lydia Davis's prose poem or short story, let's say her text, as I'm not especially interested in categorizing it, but whatever it is, I love it. I think it's great. I think this does an exquisitely good job of demonizing her mother. 
Ask 1,000 people to read the text and then answer a simple question such as, who has the greater share of your sympathies after reading this, the mother or the daughter? I would be very surprised if anyone would feel happy to stand on the sidelines cheerleading for Hope Hale Davis. Yes, that's Lydia's mother's name, Hope Hale Davis. Lydia Davis has described in an interview how her mother, quote, hurt her over and over, end quote, and that she has often written about her mother in her stories. So I think it's fair to say that this story is about the author's feelings towards her mother. Not that its psychological truth would be in any way diminished if it wasn't, because this is the kind of story I hear coming from my own mouth, or rather heard coming from my own mouth all those years ago, um, less so now, uh, especially my, my, my young adult mouth, let's say sort of, I don't know, 18 to 40 years old. I heard it coming from my own mouth, this story, over and over and over again. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. Baby. And everyone was there, some with kids and stuff, and we had a bit of a dance, you know, kept the smiles going. But then suddenly I found I was sat on a chair at the side of the room, all on my own, at my own party, and I was crying. Were you drinking gin? No. Gin can do that. I wasn't drinking at all, Mum, but I found I was crying and it was because I realised as I was sat there, I realised I completely fucked it up. What? I thought I'm 37 and I've had a good time in London, sort of, but what have I got? No flat, no kids, no partner, no car, 10,000 in unsecured debt. You're doing what you wanted, darling. Not many people can say that. What I wanted when I was 17, but I'm nearly 40 and I've got nothing. And I was sat at the side of the room and I thought, where did it go wrong? I'm walking down the street, it hit me, and the more I thought about it, the more obvious it was. It's your fault. All of it, I wanted to tell you, I thought you should know. Our fault. Baby, you're upset. I understand you're obviously in some kind of state, we can see that, but don't turn this at us, you're being ridiculous. We've given you everything. Listen to me. Well, you're accusing us I've done everything I was told to do. Just stood there and accusing us of ruining your life. This melodramatic streak, it comes from your... In the last week in my domestic realm, I've been concerned about a baby robin I often see scurrying around like a, like a feathery mouse near the shed. I've yet to see it fly. Whenever I spot the fledgling, I am struck by how vulnerable it is on the ground to cats and even my own dog pal Max, who I monitor very carefully when out in the garden just in case baby robin is nearby. A few evenings back, checking on some seedlings in my small greenhouse, I spotted the baby perched on a small piece of discarded wood near the fence. Mama robin was nowhere to be seen. Although when I do see her, granted she is often carrying a worm or some other tidbit in her mouth, no doubt for her young one. But this evening, the evening in question, it is already half past nine, still light, and Mama is nowhere to be seen. I eventually spot her sitting on the fence a few meters away, not in the vicinity of baby, her baby. Oi, I say, addressing the mother, what are you doing over there? Your baby, I say, pointing, is over here, and there are cats about. I don't speak harshly to the robin. My voice is gently chiding, teasing, if anything, but I can feel a certain thrum of moral censure towards this robin, 
whom I'm not convinced is doing enough to monitor and protect her child. There is part of me that even seems to resent the parent bird when I see baby Robin unattended. You had one job, is the phrase that springs to mind when I see baby scurrying around on the gravel, acutely vulnerable to other predators. If you spend any time on social media, you will recognize that phrase, you had one job, as a meme, part of the panoply of failure memes that Twitter, Reddit, and Instagram ambivalently deploy to celebrate, I guess, missteps and bungles. Ambivalently, because one can never be sure if the failure is being mocked with an almost compassionate, half-smiling afterglow that acknowledges the fact that bog-standard entropy invariably leads to this, the failure to meet our aspirations and best intentions, the failure to live up to the idea or the ideal of ourselves and others. But sometimes the meme is utilized more crudely as a unilateral form of degradation and shaming. When it comes to criticizing the perceived or actual failures of parents and parenting to meet the moral as well as culturally created standards of care we expect and demand for ourselves and others, the criticism usually takes a harsher form. This is an irony of sorts when you consider how many children and adults we mistreat and slaughter each year in order to feed our faces. 137, 136 although 137, pretty close, 136 million chickens, 4 million pigs, and 1.5 million sheep. And each of those living sentient creatures is someone's child too. But for our own species, we seem to be more, I don't know, punctilious on this moral rather than life or death level, and therefore much more inclined to blame, especially mothers. Mothers get it in the neck all the time in terms of our moral censure. Jacqueline Rose writes in her book-length essay, Mothers, how motherhood has, in Western discourse, become, quote, the place in our culture where we lodge or rather bury the reality of our own conflicts of what it means to be fully human. It is the ultimate scapegoat for our personal and political failings, for everything that is wrong with the world, which it becomes the task, unreliable, sorry, unreali unrealizable, of course, of mothers to repair. So we blame the mothers and they, they themselves can't really repair that. Well, I mean, we'll come back to that. To get back to the quote, Rose says, what are we doing to mothers when we expect them to carry the burden of everything that is hardest to contemplate about our society and ourselves? Mothers cannot help but be in touch with the most difficult aspects of any fully lived life. Along with the passion and pleasure, it is the secret knowledge they share. Why on earth should it fall to them to paint things bright and innocent and safe? Running through the book is the central contention that, quote, by making mothers the objects of licensed cruelty, we blind ourselves in, uh, to the world's iniquities and shut down the portals of the heart. And maybe another way of saying it, saying that is by, by blaming mothers, by blaming mothers, we blind ourselves to the world's iniquities and shut down the portals of the heart. And I think this is true. I also think that those portals are always two like the swing back doors in cowboy saloons, doors of love and of hate, or at least love and a certain form of suspicion and mistrust, which we bring to 
all human relationships. There is not a single human relationship that I have, even the ones that I, I most deeply care for that person, that there's not some small little soupçon, little level of suspicion and mistrust. We are nervy creatures, so it is natural that we can never fully love, fully entrust ourselves to another for fear of being hurt or even destroyed. And this all starts with the relationship we have with our mothers. When we talk about this relationship, especially in therapy, the tone can often take on that of Lydia Davis's story, a form of explicit or implicit resentment and blame. The contours of the moral sentiment we call blame can be found in its etymology, blame, verb, circa 1200, to find fault with, as opposed to praise or commend. Uh, circa 1300, lay responsibility on for something deemed wrong, from the old French blasme, um, to rebuke, to reprimand, to condemn, to criticize, from the vulgar Latin blasphemare, um, or blasphemare, to blaspheme, to speak lightly or amiss of God or sacred things. Also, which has the sense of here of revile or reproach. This story captures all of the above, I think, in just over 100 words. The mother's words are presented to us as faulty, right? Blame, to find fault with. Well, <laughs> there's something faulty here. Not just erroneous, imperfect, insufficient, but almost a blemish, a failure, a flaw in parenting, a kind of gap or chasm between what the child wants to hear, praise, support, love, and how the mother phrases that support or care. For Reading between the lines, apart from the last line, one could, if you were willing to do so, see some sort of attempt by the mother at relating to another person, in this case, her child, even if that attempt has fallen wide off the mark. The word spun arrow, which is really what language is, it's an arrow um, that we fire to another, or fire is not the right word, but we send over to another human being through words. The word spun arrow has fallen off the mark because the mother's words are perceived as a kind of reprimand, a condemnation, a criticism. Not just a criticism of the actions being alluded to, in this case, story writing, dollhouse building, pillow making, holding, but something deeper than these actions, something that the child perceives as striking at the very heart of her being. Which is why I think it's good to factor in the notion of blasphemy in our perception of blame. For to globally judge another person, not just their actions, but their whole lived being as wrong or at fault, right? You are to blame. You are wrong. You are at fault is a kind of blasphemy, which means to speak amiss of sacred things. And what is more sacred, you could say, than another living being? 
apart from the living beings we put into our mouth, that is, right? <laughs> do you perceive my words as carrying blame? Well, if you do, you perceive them correctly. I do blame us for believing it is our God-given right to kill other sentient creatures, even though we can live healthy and happy lives with no animal flesh in our diets. And, you know, I think there are certain forms of blame. I guess what we're talking about here is is maybe good blame and bad blame. Um, I think blaming systems for being systemically racist falls into the category of good blame or useful blame. But other blames, other forms of blame, maybe don't. And as we're opening up the space for the sacred, we might even say, you know, what is more sacred than any living entity? Plants, insects, animals, including human animals, and maybe even ideas and thoughts and images, which contain in them their own special kind of aliveness and energy. I don't know if you can feel that in these words. Um, I, can feel, I can feel that in saying them. They contain in them a, 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 an aliveness and energy, even if you don't agree with any of them, um, or agree with some and agree with others. They are alive, and they are sacred in some way. So, can we make a qualitative distinction between a harsh word uttered by a mother to her child, the murder of an animal for hamburger meat, and the murder of a human being for having a darker skin tone? I think we can. But for now, I'd like to concentrate mainly on the blame we direct towards our so-called nearest and dearest, our partners, our friends, our therapists at times even, but most of all, our parents. As far as we know, Philip Larkin, the poet Philip Larkin, never sought therapy. However, a number of tantalizing biographical pointers and instances in his writing suggest he might have been amenable to the idea, particularly during the years following his father's death. In the summer term of his second year at Oxford, 1941, interested in how the unconscious might manifest itself through music, especially jazz, Larkin was big on jazz and poetry, Larkin attended a series of lectures and informal seminars hosted by the analytical psychologist John Layard, who was living in Oxford at the time. And for some years after this meeting, we can detect the influence of Layard on his thinking. In a 1943 letter to his friend Sutton, we find him admitting that he has been, quote, psychoanalyzing himself by means of dreams, having recorded 95 odd, uh, and, and then he says, trying to find in them, quote, a curve of development it makes me think of that line in in this be the verse you know um, man hands on misery to man it deepens like a coastal shelf that's the, the curve of that development he reveals in another letter to Sutton written two months later quote I contain both my mother and father and that is the cause of my inertia there we go, there's the cause word, right? Causal. That is the cause of my inertia. I'm down, <laughs> mum and dad. That is the cause of my inertia, for in me they are incessantly opposed. It intrigues me to know that 30-year year struggle is being continued in me and in my sister too. In her, it has reached a sort of conclusion. My father is winning. Pray the Lord, my mother is superior in me. End quote. In the dissertation I wrote many moons back about Larkin's loneliness, I imagine engaging I imagine engaging with his poem, This Be the Verse, or rather the writer of it, Larkin himself, as a psychotherapist might through a series of sort of searching questions. So, you know, 
How do you think your mum and dad actually fucked you up? What did they actually do? What misery have they handed down to you? Or, you know, tell me a little bit more about the soppy sterners. What do you mean by that? Um, what memories do you have of your parents at one another's throats? Were they ever threatening with you in any way, maybe for discipline or even jokingly? Um, when you were upset emotionally as a child or physically hurt, what would they do? How would your parents respond when you turned to them at these moments? What about your own responsibility for, for yourself and your and your life as an adult now? How do you... How do you turn to yourself? How do you regulate your own autonomic nervous system when it goes a little bit awry? I'm interested to see, because I had a little read of what I wrote 15 years ago, I'm interested to see that the Steve who wrote um, this kind of stuff 15 years ago brings up the word responsibility because I now see this be the, I now see this be the verse as a somewhat irresponsible poem. Not in the sense of not thinking enough or worrying about the possible results of what you do. That's the dictionary definition of, irris of, of irresponsible. Not thinking enough, not worrying about the results of what you do. Not that kind of irresponsibility, irresponsibility but rather um, from a more descriptive, less overtly judgmental stance, which really means not being willing to take responsibility for one's own self, for one's words, for one's actions, and really, I guess, for one's own fucked upness, whatever you understand by that, um, which is to say, my understanding is one's own conflicted and often suffering-infused struggles as a human being. In this be the verse, parents hand down their own particular irate pressure cooker fucked upness to their children in a, in a, in a way, and um, just like you know, they might hand down a family heirloom and it almost seems like the child has no choice. Um, and at no point the child could sort of turn around and say, hey, um, okay, you handed me down that heirloom, but I, I don't think it really fits well into my um, life or my home and, and I'm going to give it to a charity shop. There's, there's not a sense that one can actually do that in this poem. Um, and talking of heirlooms, Larkin Sr., had a statue of Hitler <laughs> on the mantelpiece at home, um, which at the touch of a button sort of leapt into a Nazi salute. I expect when Sidney Larkin, Philip Larkin's father, um, even though, <laughs> even though, um, let me start that sentence again. I expect when Sidney Larkin died, Philip, even though Philip Larkin was, as we know, an inveterate Tory, I suspect that Philip decided not to adopt little Adolf, and yet he did inherit his father's quick temper, imperious intellect, and impatient hurrying manner. Did Larkin take responsibility for these traits in the same way that he took responsibility for shunning the Hitler statue? I suspect not, which of course raises the thorny question then of responsibility per se, and the even thornier question of free will. For if we don't have the kind of free will we might believe ourselves to have, and I think we do believe ourselves to have this, which is the free will to take total responsibility for everything we do and say and be held accountable for it, for it and of course then to demand this of others. If we don't have that free will, if we don't really have that choice, then Larkin's poem is nothing more, you could say, and maybe this is what it is, is nothing more than an explanation of what we might call hard materialism. Um, in other words, basically saying that the hard materialist would say, you have no free will. And without free will and responsibility, Davis's short story reads, I am going to argue, um, as 
uh, as an insidious piece of misogyny and anti-maternalism. Um, <laughs> but if if we really believe in free will, then I think th then 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 that Lydia Davis story has um, might be useful in pointing out where um, her mother might have been able to respond or act differently. Hey there, you've reached the tattle phone. Okay, tell me what happened after the beep. Tell me the whole story. Eli told me a lie. Seamus wasn't sharing with me and I don't like it and I'm very upset. I'm up Mason farted in my face and I said yuck Nathan. Catch that one? Nathan farted in my face and I said yuck Nathan. But the real crime? And he didn't say excuse me. Blame comes so naturally to us. We do it even when possessing no language at all. At around 11 months of age, babies prefer other people who like the same things that they do. When a child, even as young as six months of age, sees a puppet pick up and return a ball that a second puppet has dropped, as opposed to the third puppet who picks up the drop ball and runs away with it, the child is very likely to choose the helpful puppet as her preferred toy. When a one-year-old watches the same puppet show and then allocates treats to the puppets, the helpful puppet is always the winner, while the unhelpful puppet loses out and even has treats taken away from it. Terry Apter, in her book Passing Judgment, cites the evolutionary anthropologist Michael Tomasello, who argues that our pre-human ancestors, just like the other great apes who we share much of our genetic heritage with, would have had embedded in their genes a strong admiration for those who helped and cooperated with others and strong disapproval, blame, for those who did not. Blaming is a predominantly social trait. In one of my favorite episodes of the radio show and podcast, This American Life, called No Fair, David Kestenbaum reports on how a pre-kindergarten teacher installed a tattle phone in her classroom in order to give the infants in her care some outlet for the stream of moral censure pouring out of their tattling little mouths on an almost constant basis. And the most common forms of blame these young children engaged in were these property disputes, physical aggression, and rule violation. And if you're thinking, hey, <laughs> that's what adults mainly blame other people about too, you'd be right. Property disputes, physical aggression, rule violation. Take any two or three year old human animal from any socioeconomic background and record their tackling blame framed resentments, of which there are many, as you will hear in a moment, and you will see. <laughs> <laughs> the, the seeds, shall we say, of all group conflicts, um, as well as every petty and not so petty rule violation that has got your own or my own blood boiling recently, that has got our blame-shaped words flying. The tattlephone was like a magic portal into one preschool classroom in America, which is kind of incredible. Like most parents, I'll ask my kids, what happened in school today? And they get nothing. School is like this black box. You drop them off, pick them up, and you have no idea what happens in between. But now I had this phone. 
Ramona's not listening to my teacher, Mr. Evan, but he's my favorite teacher. And I know him, and I know he's mad at me, but I don't want him to be, so I'm trying my best to listen. Um, my friend Simone said no at me. My friend Simone. It's always their friends who are bugging them. My friend Jack was in my face while I was waiting to go to an area, and that made me really upset. Eli hit me, Eli hit me. People are not sharing the towel phone. How much of their day is about, like, uh, justice? Oh. I couldn't put a, put a percentage on it, but I could say the majority of the day. <laughs> this is Kathleen Jones, the lead teacher in the class. It is... Everything is, it's, and rules. They live by rules. They can sit down to play a game, and that whole playtime will be nothing but arguing about the rules. And then there's no playtime left, and they feel good about it. <laughs> it's funny, like, they can't make breakfast for themselves. They can't get dressed. They can barely talk, and, and they're they're just full of, that's not fair. And I know this is kind of obvious, but so many of the conflicts in this world come down to some version of what's going on in this classroom. What's fair? How do you divide up something that there's a limited quantity of? You know, magnetiles, we only have one acrylic one that's yellowish goldish. That is it. That is the prize in the class. Whoever gets that is like, I'm the king or the queen and ha ha. The gold. That's what they call it, the gold. I sometimes think that the main usefulness of numbers for my son Max, the whole reason he knows how to count, is scorekeeping. How many is something he has and how many his brother has. It's a weighing of the scales of justice, no matter how tiny. Qualities such as helpfulness and cooperation are incredibly important adaptive traits for our species. And we would not be here in such overwhelming quantities there's about 8 billion of us now, 6 billion 20 years ago, and 3 billion in 1960. Incredible. Um, we wouldn't be here <laughs> cluttering up the earth in the way we do if we didn't value and make use of this trait so effectively. In the first few weeks of the COVID pandemic, did we not all experience some form of innate praise and blame surfacing in us, right? Uh, praise for the... Um, the NHS workers uh, coming out at 8 o'clock every Thursday to clap and cheer um, and, and maybe also on a, on a more micro level, right? Praise for the woman in the queue behind me at my local newsagent hearing me ask the guy on the checkouts whether they had any paracetamol um, because, you know, at that point panic buying had emptied out all the pharmacies and then her offering to give me a strip, this complete stranger, give me a strip of painkillers from her own bag. And also, you know, the, the other side of praise, right? Praise and blame. Blame. The blame. Or maybe in this case, it was more just a kind of mm, sort of dislike for another woman, yeah, this time in Aldi, working the tills, um, who I asked her where she had found the treasure at the time of these few bottles of hand sanitizer I, spare, I spied next to her feet. I was, I was looking over. I was like, Ooh, what's that? And she snapped back at me fiercely that they were in stock that morning 
she had taken them then and, you know, like back away. <laughs> and she reported this to me, you know, really defensively, really angrily, as if I'd caught her stealing something or as if she'd feared that I was sort of angling for a piece of her booty, which I really wasn't. The booty being here, the, the, the sanitizer, not other forms of booty. But I have to say, I judged her, I blamed her for being petty and mean and self-serving and spiteful, even though in those weeks I was also at times petty and mean and self-serving um, out of fear and deprivation or perceived deprivation that didn't actually occur. And yet the judgment with her and the uh, the judgment went to her and the praise to that paracetamol dispensing woman. And that praise and judgment even, well, two months later has stuck. Because even when I now see the hand gel hoarder on the checkouts, as I did a few days ago, I still feel that little stab of dislike and distaste for this other human being. Whereas I can't even remember the face of the woman who I felt such gratitude towards that day in the newsagent. And this tells me that our minds are grudge holders, which is to say they are designed to remember those who have wronged us, those who have caused us discomfort or pain. And we're not the only animals who do this. Can uh, camels, crows, ravens, elephants have all been reported as remembering <laughs> even without language, right? Language really helps us here. Um, it's hard to remember things without language. But camels, crows, ravens, elephants, um, remember, I guess, at a kind of um, a kind of proprio, um, kind of um, proprioceptive, neuroceptive way, right? Within their bodies, they remember in their nervous systems those who have wronged them and they are even capable of taking revenge. And on an evolutionary level, this makes a great deal of sense. If someone does you wrong and you suffer from it, even to a small extent, you may want to remember this so as to protect yourself in the future, especially from the individual in question, but maybe others who also resemble them in some way. And you could say that maybe this also this is the seeds of racism and other forms of um, kind of group blame or group... Um, antipathy. Whether we affiliate ourselves with a religious creed or not, we are all deeply, deeply moral beings. And like all moral beings, utterly hypocritical for the most part about our moral judgments. It's always do as I say or expect or think you ought to do and not really as I do or say or think, right? Lest you be judged by me. And if babies of six months old are already able to judge and condemn others on the basis of helpfulness and cooperation. Imagine what our minds are able to do in the judgment stakes once they acquire language. At that moment, and forever after, not only can we experience, as babies will do, right, the shudder of pleasure and pain when someone either fulfills our wants or needs or desires them, or denies them, sorry, we are also able to record that person's pro-social behavior in in a narrative, a story, which we will then tell ourselves and others over and over and over and over again. This person did, ma did me wrong. They did me wrong. They did me wrong. They did me wrong. They are at fault and they did me wrong. And that is why I resent them. And that is why you too should resent them if you are in, in accordance with me. And maybe if you don't resent them, if you don't join me in my blame narrative, then you are against me too and I am then against you.
And every time we tell our blaming, resentful story, we experience once more that original shudder of wrongness, which then creates a self-amplifying and self-generating loop of praise or blame, which like the misery that Philip Larkin says we hand down to each other, can only deepen like a coastal shelf. And that will then form the foundation for the body of water, the ocean of bitterness and recrimination that lies upon it. The ocean of bitterness and recrimination in which many of us swim on a daily basis. <laughs> um, even though we're kind of swimming in an ocean of acid, which is perhaps um, stripping away our, our delicate flesh as we do it. At a very important level, I think the tattle phone or the tattle story, if this is what Lydia Davis's story at some level is, you know, it's like, mom, mom said this to me, right? Um, uh, this sort of tattle phone or the tattle story plays an important role, I think, in our social interactions. These outbursts are not that dissimilar to the newspaper article informing us of some terrible social or political justice that has just occurred somewhere on our planet. We use these stories not, to just inf not just to inform each other, but also to call for responsibility, which is as much to say, do you, listener or mother or police force or President Trump, have the willingness as well as the ability to respond to this injustice. That's what a call for responsibility is. Do you have the responsibility, the ability to respond? Do you even perceive this as an injustice or are you too busy defending what you perceive as a personal attack on you to actually take account and respond wisely, which I guess is the best form of responsibility. Can you do this? Can you respond to the information contained in the story of this blame? And I think this is also where our blame stories show their Achilles heels. Blame is one thing, but the responding, the justice, as it were, is another. Here's David Kestenbaum again, I think, illuminating this point. Before we put the phone in the class, I had it set up in my house just to make sure it was working. My kids used it a couple times. And then our younger son, Max, was complaining that his brother, Augie, who's a year older, had pinched him. Tell it to the tattle phone, I said. It's not working, he told me. I picked the phone up, worried that there was some technical glitch. But it was fine. It's working, Max. No, he said, it's not. It did not do anything. It doesn't even work to me. It doesn't even do anything. It listened to your tattle? No, it doesn't. What do you mean, it listened? It, it didn't. It didn't stop Augie pinching me. It didn't stop Augie pinching me. I know, Max. I know. Sometimes you want more than just to speak. You want actual justice. At the start of Nadine Labaki's incredible film, Capernaum, a young boy, Zain al-Hajj, no older than 11 or 12, is led into a modern-day courtroom in Beirut. The premise of the film is that he's filing a civil suit against his parents for giving birth to him, for giving him and his other siblings this life of destitution and poverty. Zayn has to take care of seven younger children, and although he is fiercely intelligent, he's not allowed to go to school, but spends his days helping his mother to acquire tramadol pills through forged prescriptions, which kids then crush into powder, which can then be sold on 
as a street drug. And we find out that Zayn is in the middle of serving a five-year prison sentence for stabbing Assad, his family's landlord, a man who had taken away his beloved younger sister, Sahar, in lieu of rent, married her, got her pregnant at the tender age of 11, resulting in health complications and her untimely death. This is not a courtroom film. The court case frames the story we are told in flashbacks, taking us to a place where our initial... I think this is where we are at the beginning of the film, our initial sort of clear-cut sense of who was wrong and who was right becomes a bit muddied and problematic, even without losing the sense that a terrible injustice and failure of parenting and caregiving has befallen this young boy, for it has. Zane, like the infants in the American school, is not just wanting to have his blame and resentment heard and understood. He is wanting actual justice to occur whatever that means. Now, I feel like parents have a lot of power, and I feel like parents can instill in their child a message. And I feel like in that moment, my mom could have made me a princess. Rich, powerful, adored. But what did she make me? Fat, dirty, and homeless, to which I would struggle with for the fucking rest of my life. That is so kind, that is so kind. I can't blame her. Actually, I do on stage from a microphone all the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can't blame her, uh, cause she's a baby boomer, which is uh, hands down the worst generation uh, of parenting and the history of parenting. That's not my opinion, no. That is a fact. Uh, Perhaps we fall into the blame trap as part of the illusion of having free will. This might surprise you, referring to free will as an illusion. Think about the last thing you did which you now regret, maybe an unkind reply or a post on social media or something closer to home. To what extent did you really have a choice in terms of behaving in the way that you did? Was there a, a choice point in the midst of this action that flashed up clearly in consciousness stating, hey, out of these two courses of action, you can either do action A, which you will probably regret, or you can do action B, which will serve you better in the long term. And even if such a choice were given, would we consciously choose and always choose action B, the so-called better choice? I wouldn't, and often I don't. For example, last night, coming home from a walk, I bought some wine and some snacks, even though I knew I would be working the next day and would preferably like to wake up clear-headed and without my stomach complaining from having to overwork in digesting large quantities of paprika-flavored Walker's Ridge crisps. Did I have a clear-cut choice in opting for short-term gratification over a more skillful and moderate long-term gain? Well, our default animal hardwiring is to try and maximize pleasure and sustenance and minimize pain or deprivation. You don't have to even be an animal to do this, right? Um, or rather, you don't even have to be a mammal to do this. Show me a robin that spots a feeding tray with one of its favorite snacks, um, rehydrated mealworm, who chooses at that moment to forego the pleasure of eating, of gorging himself or herself on that snack. Maybe if it had just feasted on fresh, live worms from a recently dug up patch of bedding, maybe it might forego the pleasure. But otherwise, any bird will 
will eat as much mealworm as it can, the way we gorge ourselves on our favorite foods. When you then factor into my purchase of wine and crisps, the genetics of the hairless ape that I am developmentally influenced and, and formed by, that formed my, my system, my personality traits, um, particularly those big five, you know, conscientiousness, openness to experience, neuroticism, as well as the readily, the ready availability of these snacks um, sprinkled with flavors that drive our taste buds wild. Uh, well, then the likelihood of me buying the crisps and the wine gets stronger and stronger. Now factor in my relationship over my life with these substances, all the experiences I've had eating crisps and drinking wine, and, and those are pretty much positive ones, and now factor in just how my body is feeling at that moment, perhaps strong and relatively at ease after a good walk, and the kind of chatter in my mind. You deserve a treat, something nice to end the week. Off with a bang, the last hurrah, go for it. And all that other mind guff. And slowly but surely you can see, I think, why a number of philosophers and neuropsychologists, people who study the brain and recognize how decisions are usually made, a brief time before they actually show up in consciousness, how these people believe that we have very little choice in the decision to eat crisps and to drink wine and to do most of the other things that we do. And maybe we have no choice at all. Or rather, a very limited one, one that would entail me actively and with a great deal of effort overriding my default biological predispositions reinforced by the culture in which I live. In order to not have eaten those crisps, I would have needed to disobey my own mind's entreaties and my body's urges. And that's a big ask. And generally can only be done if we are very strongly motivated by a value system or a set of beliefs that transcends our default motivations and behaviors. It also requires our nervous systems to be relatively settled so that we can make the wise choice. The way... I don't know, you might feel after meditating for 20 minutes, so not your usual sort of harried self. That more centered, focused self can sometimes make the wise choice, but often not, particularly when it comes to crisps and wine. If you pay attention to your inner life, you will see that the emergence of choices, efforts, and intentions is a fundamentally mysterious process, writes Sam Harris in his short, instructive book, Free Will. Harris is what is known as a hard determinist in that he makes the case, persuasively I think, for the notion that our sense of ourselves as being free agents who get to choose our destiny and then simply manifest it is at best misguided and at worst delusive and engendering of a great deal of unnecessary suffering. Here's one of the many real-life examples that Harris cites to bring us into this hard materialist space. If you pay attention to your inner life, you will see that the emergence of choices, efforts, and intentions is a fundamentally mysterious process. Yes, you can decide to go on a diet, and we know a lot about the variables that will enable you to stick to it, but you cannot know why you were finally able to adhere to this discipline when all your previous attempts failed. You might have a story to tell about why things were different this time around, but it would be nothing more than a post hoc description of events that you did not control. Yes, you can do what you want, but you cannot account for the fact that your wants are effective in one case and not in another, and you certainly can't choose your wants in advance. You wanted to lose weight for years, then you really wanted to. What's the difference? 
Whatever it is, it's not a difference that you brought into being. You are not in control of your mind, because you as a conscious agent are only part of your mind, living at the mercy of other parts. You can do what you decide to do, but you cannot decide what you will decide to do. Of course, you can create a framework in which certain decisions are more likely than others. You can, for instance, purge your house of all sweets, making it very unlikely that you will eat dessert later in the evening. But you cannot know why you were able to submit to such a framework today when you weren't yesterday. So what might this have to do with blaming our parents for things they said or did to us while we were living under their roof and, and after? What if I told you that the mother of this short story, the mother we hold in contempt for her responses to her daughter's comments relayed to us by her daughter. What if I told you that this mother was born at the turn of the last century and that her father, a high school principal, died shortly after her birth. Her new stepfather died when she was a child too. What if I told you that Hope Hale Davis, uh, Hope Hale Davis's mother, so that's Lydia Davis's grandmother, raised her daughter through the Great Depression and was a strict, rigid disciplinarian, a teacher, big on tough love, providing an upbringing that this daughter, who would herself be a mother to three successful children, cites as being intrinsic to her coping with the many trials and tribulations she faced both personally and politically in the turbulent 20th century. What if I told you that one of Lydia Davis's mother's first jobs was writing advertising jingles for cereals, all of which her male bosses took credit for, and that this, as well as many other experiences, turned her into a feminist and supporter of the Communist Party? What if I also shared that as a young woman, she supported herself and her firstborn child by becoming a freelance writer, a pretty gutsy and difficult thing for a woman to do in the 1920s. This woman, the mother of Lydia Davis's story, is, I think I'm trying to say, no pushover. Is it any surprise then that some of her feistiness, for want of a better word, carries over into her parenting? What if I told you that in the 1930s she fought for the elimination of child labor in American cotton mills where children spent their childhood rushing from one loom to the other, tying threads with their tiny nimble fingers until they collapsed with tuberculosis, their little brothers and sisters taking their place? What if I told you that the mother of the story had her daughter at the age of 44, this is Lydia Davis, so Hope Hale Davis had Lydia when she was 44, not very common in the mid-20th century, so that when these kinds of mother-daughter altercations were occurring, mainly, I guess, in Lydia's teen years, the mother in question, Hope Hale Davis, was nearly 60 years old. Her energies and perhaps even her patience after various other children starting to wear a tad thin. And what do we know of Lydia Davis as a child? Was she all sweetness and light? Probably not. Generally, or sorry, genetically, she would have had much of her mother in her. And so, of course... <laughs> One strong-willed person facing another strong-willed person. Well, what are you going to get? You're going to get a clash. Take your worst traits and put them into another person and see how well the two of you get along. Does any of this biographical detail affect the way you or I read or hear the story? Let's hear it again and see if any of that actually frames the story slightly differently for you. The girl wrote a story. But how much better it would be if you wrote a novel, said her mother. The girl built a dollhouse. But how much better if it were a real house, her mother said. 
the girl made a small pillow for her father. But wouldn't a quilt be more practical? said her mother. The girl dug a small hole in the garden. But how much better if you dug a large hole? said her mother. The girl dug a large hole and went to sleep in it. But how much better if you slept forever? said her mother. When one starts reading into ideas around moral responsibility with respect to parents or political leaders or the police force, a 1962 essay by the British philosopher Peter Strawson starts popping up. And this essay is called Freedom and Resentment. And it focuses on this very thorny question of whether it is possible or even desirable to conflate our notions of determinism with moral resentment and blame. If, as most philosophers now believe, our behavior, even the most diminutive of decisions, is somewhat or even significantly determined by our genes, by our upbringing, by our socioeconomic circumstances, and various other factors completely out of our control, then you might say, how can we ask the people who have hurt us in some way to take direct responsibility for their actions in the way that we often do when we blame. It would be like asking the wind to take responsibility for blowing down a tree uh, or a rabbit or some other non-human animal for raiding our vegetable patch. Blaming rabbits for desecrating our planting is in some sense a Freudian project and more broadly speaking a therapeutic one where it is now a commonplace, I think, explicitly or implicitly acknowledged in all our therapeutic conversations. Most people in therapy, including myself, feel or have felt entirely justified in laying their, our, fucked upness, however we choose to self-pathologize, at their, our parents' feet. But seen in the light of the free will debate, this culturally validated assumption, I think, becomes a little bit more problematic. For if our parents and ourselves don't possess the free will we perceive them and us as having, are we truly justified in asking those parents or ourselves to take responsibility for the suffering we are experiencing in our lives now or in the past in a direct causal way? For this is what we are doing when actively seeking causal explanations in the retrospective analysis of our childhood or in past actions carried out by others or ourselves. The mind is masterful at finding reasons for those things that vex us. I can be a, bit, a little bit clingy in relationships. Is that really because my father decided to stop seeing me when I was 11 years old and has been a shadowy presence in my life ever since? Maybe. I mean, it sounds plausible, but still, you know, I had a mother and a stepfather taking care of me. So why should my mind find so much solace in that psychodynamic explanation? Daddy abandoned me, and so I get very, very uptight about whenever I sense the possibility of being abandoned. That would be the psychodynamic explanation, uh, um, a simplistic version of it, but in a nutshell. I think it's because... Having some kind of explanation, even a spurious one, reassures us and dampens our anxiety. It can also, and I think this is very much the case in my life, let us off the hook when it comes for taking full responsibility for how we act in response to feelings or perceptions that we may decide stem back to childhood. 
So, you know, sorry, I don't have great self-control when sending text messages, love of my life. Blame my father, circa 1982 or 1983. And this is not a new criticism of the psychodynamic project. Even at the height of the Freudian grip on Western culture in the 1950s, um, when Larkin was getting also very excited by, by, by psychoanalysis and Freudianism, Stephen Sondheim brilliantly skewered its reductionism in the lyrics of Officer Krupke, a song he wrote with Leonard Bernstein for West Side Story. Dear kindly Sergeant Krupke, you gotta understand, it's just our bringing up key that gets us out of hand. Our mothers all are junkies, our fathers all are drunks. Golly Moses, naturally we're punks. Strawson draws a contrast between two different perspectives we can take in the world, but also our childhood traumas. And he calls these the, the participant and the objective standpoint or perspective. And these perspectives involve different explanations, you could say, of other people's actions. So from the objective point of view, objective doesn't mean here rational or anything like that. From the objective point of view, we see people as elements of the natural world, um, uh, causally manipulated and manipulable in various ways. So wind, rain, the robin in my garden, etc. From the objective point of view, in other words, seeing people as objects, everyone and everything is determined by causal explanations outside the control of the agents who are affected by these causes. In other words, you know, you don't start going, um, you don't start blaming the rain, right? The rain is just doing what the rain does and that has been, um, and the reason why there is rain is a whole series of causal elements that have brought rain to you at that moment, but you don't look out the window and go, damn you rain well we do that's interesting right we do blame the rain but we know at some level that um the rain is not really to blame um but you know strawson makes the point that we very rarely take this perspective because as early years research suggests moral agency and judgment is so baked into our dna that it is it is as close to us as our own breath and Strawson calls this the participant point of view, where we see others as appropriate recipients for reactive attitudes, both positive and negative. So the participant point of view is where we essentially, um, other than, you know, unlike the rain, we look at something that is annoying us or irritating us or that has hurt us or caused us harm. And, and we blame it. And we blame it because we believe that, that, um, that this thing or person um, has made a choice and part of that choice has also been the recognition that what they are going to do is going to harm us and I think this is brilliantly again brilliantly shown in um, Sondheim's Oops. lyrics my daddy beats my mommy my mommy clobbers me my grandpa is a commie my grandma pushes tea my sister wears a mustache my brother wears a dress Goodness gracious, that's why I'm a mess. These two perspectives are clearly opposed to one another and seemingly cancel, cancel each other out. But both of them are legitimate. Strawson argues that our reactive attitudes towards others, the blaming material of the story by Lydia Davis, is therefore natural and irrevocable. Our inherent and innate reactivity is a central part of what it is to be human. And it's particularly central when we are in that sympathetic nervous system state of fight and flight, when we are um, looking around, particularly in the fight part, for someone to blame.
The truth of determinism will never persuade us, essentially, this is what he's saying, the truth of determinism that, in fact, everything is determined, will never persuade us to give up the participant standpoint because these reactive attitudes are too deeply embedded in our humanity, which is why we may decide to try and make a valiant stance against our reactive minds with their readiness to blame and criticize and throw shade on others and ourselves. But as you have probably experienced, this is a big ask and it takes work. And why would we do that when the easier option is just to stick with what we know what we know being what we feel, and what we feel is more often than not blame rather than praise. Uh, Illinois, the governor couldn't do his job with Governor Cuomo. He had a chance to order 16,000 ventilators two years ago, and he turned it down. He turned down the chance. Now, he can't be blaming us. I talk about the Chinese virus, and, uh, and I mean it. That's where it came from. It comes from China. Certainly, uh, the world is paying a big price for what they did 10 to 20,000 masks to 300,000. Something's going on. Where are the masks going? Are they going out the back door? You did disband the White House pandemic office. And when you say me, I didn't do it. Uh, we have a group of people. I could I could ask perhaps my administration, but I could perhaps ask uh, Tony about that because uh, I don't know anything about it. I mean, you say, you say we did that. I don't know anything you about it. There's a wonderful little um, home fable again I don't know what really sort of category to put it into and it's it's called the optical prodigal and it plays with this idea of perspective I think in quite an interesting way it was written in the late 70s by one of the cerebral gestures of 20th century American poetry Russell Edson and this is how it goes this is the optical prodigal a man sees a tiny couple in the distance and thinks they might be his mother and father but when he gets to them they're still little you're still little he says don't you remember who said you were supposed to be here, says the little husband. You're supposed to be in your own distance. You're still in your own foreground, you spendthrift. No, no, says the man. You're to blame. So, let me, let me give you the first two lines again. A man sees a tiny couple in the distance and thinks they might be his mother and father, but when he gets to them, they're still little. So Edson here is using the perspective of distance to say something about memory, I think, but also about how the mind finds it quite difficult to update its perceptions after taking a negatively biased reading of the past. It is as if the speaker is butting up against the illusion of memory. We forget that our memories are a series of visuals and other bits and bobs shaped by a narrative that we have imposed on them. The man crosses the distance of time in this poem and goes to meet the parents of his memories, who there are full-sized, maybe even oversized, befitting their importance in our lives, only to find that memory has shrunk them down, which is what memory does, to a few salient characteristics. This is what we all need to do when remembering our interactions with our parents or anyone else take the richly detailed moment by moment mutating and shifting and contradicting itself human being in the present and get a snapshot of them which is really wherever our focus of attention lies at that moment right get a snapshot of that person and then stow it away in memory and form our whole idea and our memory of that event from that little snapshot the parents in our memories are not really fully formed people, but rather ciphers into which we stow all our praise and blame into those memories. I've always been struck by the father's response in this little story, especially the spendthrift line. This is what 
this is what he says, right? He says, who said you were supposed to be here? This is the father. You're supposed to be in your own distance. You're still in your own foreground, you spendthrift. Why is the memory abiding father using the language of expenditure and finance to comment on the son's fixation on, um, uh, on these past selves? I think the implication here might be that the poet, through the voice of the father, is interrogating our need to blame, as if the father is saying, why are you still spending so much time moseying around in the distant past, looking for clues to prosecute the tiny, confused beings who we heeded and resisted at the time as domestic gods, but who are now, in our own tiny, confused lives, often dis disagreeably entangled with? Right. I mean, it's it's sort of why are you spending all of your time on this? Um, and of course, you know, Strawson would say, well, we have to spend our time on this. We have reactive minds um, and this is what our minds do. A young woman lying in a New York hospital bed with an undiagnosed illness screws up the courage to ask her mother why her mother, this woman, this other woman, has trekked halfway across the country to come and visit her. She has not spoken to her mother for many years. Like Zane, who I referred to in Capernaum, the film, she grew up in a dirt poor family and still carries with her the shame as well as the memories of a desperate mother taking out her frustrations on her and her sister Vicky, which so many, if not all parents, at least at certain times, end up doing. Mommy? I said softly that next night. Yes? Why did you come here? There was a pause, as though she was shifting her position in the chair. But my head was turned toward the window. Because your husband called and asked for me to come. He needed you babysat, I believe. For a long while there was silence. Maybe it was ten minutes. Maybe it was almost an hour. I really don't know. But finally I said, Well, thank you anyway. And she did not reply. Have we not all tried at some point to ask our parents leading questions in the hope that they might give us some kind of textbook answer, one that all the self-help books and a good deal of psychotherapy sessions may have led us to believe would come about if only we ask the right question. I once asked my taciturn stepfather on a hike why he had been willing to take me on as extra baggage when he dated and later married my mother, uh, killing two birds with one stone, as it were, so that I would also have a father growing up. In the 70s, even more so than now, to grow up without a father figure was considered a fundamental omission and hindrance to one's development. My stepfather replied to this question in the only way he could, truthfully, but it was not the answer I wanted. Well, he said, I had been raised with a strong sense of duty and responsibility taking, so in marrying your mother, I felt obliged to help raise the child that came with her. <laughs> obliged. He probably didn't say obliged. This is a self-serving piece of reportage. Uh, are not all memories in some way self-serving pieces of reportage. But 
whatever the the nature of the memory, I held this answer against him for many years. I don't anymore. Well, not entirely. My stepfather, fine and noble man that he is, is not the sort of creature that would answer any question in a soppy, sentimental way. So why would he step out of character and answer this question in the way that I maybe wanted him to at the time? What I hoped he might say was, I'd always wanted or expected to have children, and even though you weren't my child in terms of DNA, I felt we had formed a bond in the years I dated your mother, and I guess I saw you in some way as my own, or at least would have liked you to be. I'm not even sure my father could say something like this to my brother, his blood child. It is not in his makeup to feel or express himself in this way, fine and noble man that he still is. Which is why I have tried in the years since then to stop blaming him for not being someone else. But I still get caught in my reactive, blaming mind and end up being disappointed that he is not the father of my imagination, that he is rather the father of my life. The conversation that Lucy Barton had tried to have with her mother doesn't go away. This is no doubt helped by circumstances. They are spending almost 24 hours together in that hospital room. Unsaid sentiments will eventually out, certainly in those kinds of conditions. In the middle of the night, I woke from a nightmare I could not remember. Her voice came quietly, Whistle Dee, sleep, or if you can't sleep, just rest. Please rest, honey. You're never sleeping, I said, trying to sit up. How can you go every night never sleeping? Mom, it's been two nights. Don't worry about me, she said. She added, I like your doctor. He's watching out for you. The residents know nothing. How can they? But he's good. He'll see to it that you get better. I like him too, I said. I love him. A few minutes later, she said, I'm sorry we had so little money when you kids were growing up. I know it was humiliating. In the dark, I felt my face become very warm. I don't think it mattered, I said. Of course it mattered. But we're all fine now. I'm not so sure. She said this thoughtfully. Your brother is almost a middle-aged man who sleeps with pigs and reads children's books. And Vicky, she's still mad about it. The kids made fun of you at school. Your father and I didn't know that. I suppose we should have. Vicky's really still pretty mad. At you? Yes, I think so. That's silly, I said. No, mothers are supposed to protect their children. After a while, I said, Mom, there are kids with mothers who sell them for drugs. There are kids whose mothers take off for days and just leave them. There are... I stopped. I was tired of what was sounding untrue. She said, You were a different kind of kid from Vicky, and from your brother, too. 
You didn't care as much what people thought. What makes you say that? I asked. Well, look at your life right now. You just went ahead and did it. I see. I didn't see, though. How do we ever see something about our own self? Perhaps the mother is prompted here to apologize after her daughter expresses love for her unnamed doctor, which she calls a jolly-faced Jewish man who wore such a gentle sadness on his shoulders. Or perhaps she had realized that this reckoning needed to be made and said. I am struck by the daughter playing relativist lip service to those who had it worse than her. As much as we feel compelled to blame our parents, we also recognize at some level, well, certainly Lucy does, that they were only doing their best, which might not have been good enough, but still. In the courtroom of blame, which is often the locus of this deeply felt moral state, we usually consider ourselves to be beholden in some way to make binary choices. You're either on the side of the prosecution or the defense, right? You're either on Lydia's side or you're on Lydia mother, Lydia's mother's side. But what if we undersell ourselves and others by doing this? What if the best way to use our split brains, encompassing as they do all the ambivalence and conflict we feel about most things, if we're really honest with ourselves, maybe the best thing to do is to try and hold both perspectives, and maybe even more than two. One gets a sense that this is a mother who is not capable of being emotionally vulnerable, of saying the words her daughter might need to hear on this matter or many other matters. Had this novel been told through the eyes of the mother and not the daughter, I'm sure a, skin, a skilled writer such as Strout would enable us to see that most, if not all, of her rash parenting decisions arose out of a combination of ignorance, poverty, and social deprivation, and even maybe just that sort of getting by desperation, for want of a better word. Perhaps because Lucy Barton deeply loves and cares for her mother, even with all the ambivalence um, that her past has freighted her mind with, uh, she finds it difficult to call for her to be punished. But we readers might not let her off the hook so easily. We want as her daughter does, for her to be accountable in some way. We might even, as Lucy's sister, Vicky does, uh, want for the mother to be punished for her parenting misdemeanors. But what would that punishment even look like? And what purpose would it serve anyway? Barton, I think, offers a way for us to be both reactive participants in the stories of our lives, right? Blaming our parents, ourselves, our leaders, and anyone else we can think of for making us suffer, um, but at the same time, perhaps aided by the distance and perspective of writing and reading, allowing us to see all the characters and events of our life stories from a more blameless perspective, from, as Strawson put it, that sort of um, objective perspective. In other words, literally seeing other people and ourselves as sort of, at some level, being moved around on this great chessboard of life. As objects, um, you know, our genes and our past histories and our circumstances and our socioeconomic positions and all of those other things, um, maybe 
um, resulting in us not being as much of a free agent as we like to think we are. And if that's the case, then from this more blameless perspective, um, maybe we can look at ourselves and look at others with a little bit more compassion and empathy. When I'm working in therapy with another nervy creature, for we are all nervy creatures, our functioning built on 500 million year old pathways, which we now call our nervous system, we sometimes have a conversation about what it means to be alive, not just from the vantage point of Sigmund Freud or Albert Ellis's stoically informed CBT or, or whatever else the last 100 years of psychotherapy has given us in terms of explanatory narratives, and they are all narratives, but I'm talking about what it means to be alive purely from an experiential, this is what it feels like to inhabit my body, baseline. And when I do this, especially with someone who falls on the even more nervy than average side of the nervy spectrum, uh, someone like me, we end up talking about that low hum of alarm we often both feel of things not being quite right, of that hard to pin down sense of danger or threat where we try and live inside this, our complicated lives, mostly or, well, for for a good part of the time, a little bit unsettled and a little bit uneasy. And for some people, a lot unsettled and a lot uneasy. And perhaps this is the first step to befriending our nervous systems, to use that term um, of a, a new Sounds True program that I've been listening to, which I just love by um, Deb Dana. It's called Befriending Your Nervous System. And perhaps <laughs> this discussion is the first step to befriending our nervous systems, um, recognizing that we have and cannot entirely avoid at times that somewhat scratchy inner vigilance of that sympathetic um, alarm system. I'm talking about the sympathetic nervous system here, the sympathetic nervous alarm system um, created out of all of those cylindrical bundles of fibers, which we call nerves, that start at the base of the brain and branch out to every other part of the body. And like our non-organic electricity systems, the ones that are firing up this computer at the moment so that I can record this, our nervous systems are switched on at all times. Even in sleep, we can be roused by a sound or a movement or some other stimulus. That low-level hum of what we now call anxiety is maybe, at one level, our personal alarm systems, right, monitoring our surroundings just in case, just in case. For when our nervous systems were developed half a billion years ago, we were not, as we are now, at the top of the food chain. We were not even mammals yet. Our mammalian heritage came much, much later, about 200 million years ago. But our nervous systems, the energy coursing through all our cells, that feeling in our body of being alive, and at times that feeling of being a little bit too much alive, as in so alive that someone else might come and gobble us up and then we, therefore we would be dead. In other words, feeling fear <laughs> or a sense of danger, that sensing of when we are in danger stretches almost as far back to the beginning of animals themselves. And that's what I mean by half a billion years, right? 500 million years. Kingdom animalia is the taxonomic rank here. Animals, those multicellular organisms who we share the planets with, um, or the planet with, 
perhaps there are animals on other planets. And animals have only been around really for 610 million years on a planet that is about seven times older than that. Chordates, which is to say animals possessing dorsal nerves, have been around for 500 million years. And we more developed, in inverted commas, nervy creatures with not only dorsal but also vagal nerves hark back to the first chordates half a billion years ago, the early fish and amphibians, uh, the early reptiles and birds. Our nervous systems were built, just like all the other animals who could be eaten or injured by the surroundings, to be on hyper alert for any sign of danger. You know the story, you've heard it before, right? All the time. <laughs> um, that's that feeling of that um, sympathetic, alert nervous system. Um, and as we know, when we get kind of trapped in that, uh, that can feel mm, really, really ooh, unpleasant because it's not really designed. It's not designed for us to be a, a, in a high sympathetic state all the time. But this is what, unfortunately, living in a bit of a, an insane world sometimes, um, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes renders. And so we need to, we need to learn. We need to learn how to move through those different states um, with a little bit more fluidity. But to come back to the monitoring, that monitoring that often goes on outside of awareness, when a spider crawls up the wall two meters away from me while I'm concentrated on the screen, um, reading, speaking from my notes, um, I sense its presence just as a little blip of something not right, registering itself on my nervous system with singles, signals rather, sent in microseconds to the muscles in my leg and my waist and my neck. And this is all done unco unconsciously, auto automatically, autonomically, as the name of the nervous system would suggest. I stop what I'm doing, I turn around to investigate. Seeing it's just a spider, I, I return. But even that tiny moment of danger will have raised my stress levels a tad and it will take a few moments or minutes or maybe longer for me to settle. And there is, of course, no way to temporarily switch this nervy monitoring system off. Alcohol can do that for a while, as can other drugs. Meditation, deep muscle massage can sometimes render the alarm system woozy for a few hours. But eventually it comes back online, weary, suspicious, alert for danger. So, a creature with an alarm system that is always turned on to some extent, and maybe even to a noticeable extent for most of the time, we call this being alive, enters my office and says tuning into 100 years of psychotherapeutic culture. Hey, here's a story I heard from Freud, though it's also in the Bible and other ancient texts. The story is that, well, how do I put this? My parents and other childhood mishaps attributable to them or other adults basically fucked me up, right? My fucked up nervous system, the fact that I spend a lot of my time in um, sympathetic fight-flight mode, that survival mode, really, um, that stressful survival mode, the fact that I spend a lot of the t my time in there, well, the reason I'm suffering is because, well, it's, it's, not, it's not because of, you know, it's not because of dysregulation in my nervous system. No, the reason I'm suffering is because my father decided when I was 11 years old that he couldn't cope with parenting me and disappeared from my life. And who's to say, maybe that is a direct causal link to um, how I experience being alive and how you experience being alive. Who knows? Um, but maybe not. 
this person might also say to me, you know, every self-help book I read explains that this feeling of discomfort and unhappiness, the sense of myself frequently not being at ease in myself, not feeling at home in my body, can be eased as long as I find and work through the right, pro the right process and the right person to blame. Either those who frequently drop the ball when they were raising me or myself because I have so many faults, so many balls to drop, so many things about me that are not perfect, that are, to put it bluntly, all too human, which is to say all too animal, possessing as I do 500 million year, this 500 million year old nervous system, so utterly imperfect when compared to the functionality and the fixability of the integrated circuit boards that make up my phone or some other device. And... They taunt me, these machines with their perfection, someone might say. Why can't I be more like them? Why can't I be more like the performance of perfectibility I see being enacted by other human beings all around me, especially on the screens of the machines I spend all my time with? Why can't I be like that? And then you or I might say to them, hey, did you maybe ever think that the feeling you don't like is kind of, well, it's kind of like the feeling of being alive <laughs> in this human dimension, in this thing we call existence, whatever that is. And of course, nobody wants to hear that message because then the responsibility for how we feel and how we continue to live and flourish and how when we're feeling crappy, we then work with our nervous systems and do certain things to either um, increase or decrease our energies, um, move through the different states of our nervous system. We don't, we don't want that responsibility necessarily, right? We don't want to necessarily manage our feelings, the not so pleasant feelings as well as the very pleasant feelings, because that does take effort. And, <laughs> you know, if the responsibility for how we regulate our inner worlds does ultimately rest with us, um, you know, more with us than anyone else, then that becomes tricky, doesn't it? You know, what do we do? Do we take the drugs, both over the counter and those grown in the soil, to help us with this task? Maybe. Do we exercise and eat well, giving our bodies and what they require us to function at an optimal level and no more? Yeah, that might help. Do we work in therapy or other modalities on befriending, regulating our nervous systems so that when we're in a particular autonomic nervous, nervous state or nerve state revealed to us through our thoughts and our body sensations and our emotions, we then try or at least yeah make an attempt to help ourselves come back to our home base come back to that that sort of ventral vagus uh space that quiet calm breathing centered grounded space well yes that sounds like an excellent idea do we take care of our sleep patterns, keep our relationships in good repair so that we can feel the best a human body in this human dimension can feel? Sure. <laughs> and sometimes the best we can feel is not always great, um, but sometimes it is. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Being human, doing this thing we call life, even though we're not entirely sure what that means. But to give up on blame, at least cognitively, 
does, I think, mean taking on more responsibility for ourselves, the responsibility to take the way we live our lives quite seriously, to take the pursuit of happiness, whatever that means for you, well-being, whatever it is, seriously, which may lead you to pursuing things that don't provide uninterrupted pleasure in the short term. You know, having children, working on creative projects that won't make any money, podcasts, this is not going to make me a single penny, fighting for a cause you believe in, um, Black Lives Matter, right, that sort of thing. It's not instant gratification stuff. All this takes effort and our brains will fight us <laughs> on this. They are energy conserving entities, let us not forget. They would prefer not to put in the effort of taking 100% responsibility for ourselves. Blame, as it is something made out of words, like the ones you're listening to here, always takes less effort than putting up with our parents or our own annoying idiosyncrasies or waiting for something to change or shift or resolve itself as things often do in time. Sometimes I'm up for making that effort myself and often not. And when not, I would prefer to lay the blame of how I'm feeling, even how my blameless nervous system is feeling, which is often you know, as nervous systems are, a bit wired, a bit weary, a bit unsettled, I'd prefer to lay that at someone else's feet. And I will fight you if you try and redirect that blame, which I lay at someone else's feet or their mouths or their words, back back to me. I will fight for my right to say, here, you take it. You take this life, this life I didn't choose that was given to me. You take ownership of it. You sort it out. You decide for me whether it's going to be a rich and fulfilling life for the most part or for some part, or whether it's just going to be a life of complaint and dissatisfaction, a life of getting pleasure from the thin gruel of pleasurable distractions and other things we can find on screens. Although this is not a tirade against screens. I, I'm very fond of screens. I'm reading these words of a screen. Some of my best friends are screens. <laughs> Take your pick. Is, I guess what I'm saying here, the blue pill, the red pill, sitting in the cave watching the flickering images or striding out into the full glare of existence, take your pick, knowing that each moment of the day we can all choose to some extent whether we want to stay in the cave with our little diagnostic statistics manuals telling us how fucked up we are and our blameworthy pain, pain events and stay in the cave rocking back and forth for a day or a week or a month or a year or for 10. But at some point... I'm getting to the end of the rant. I'm getting to the end of the pontification. At some point, dependent on the grace and good of something we have no way of knowing face to face, but maybe we recognize it when we feel it, we may, we may be nudged to follow another path. No matter how searing that path is, no matter how painful at times, how costly of energy or time or emotion, a path of, ooh, for want of a better word, love and devotion, which requires us to tolerate and accept all sorts of things we might prefer not to. You could say this is the path of taking responsibility for ourselves and our lives, which also means, I think, uh, a decision to cut back and cut down as much as possible on external as well as internally focused blame. And that's hard because if I've done one thing in this rather long-winded podcast, I hope it is to maybe convey the message that we are uh, wired to blame, essentially, right? <laughs> forgive them not, for they are wired to blame. But at the same time, sorry, forgive them for they are wired to blame. <laughs> yes, 
<laughs> forgive them not is, is another form of blame. But at the same time, isn't it also wonderful that we hold each other to account, right? I'm going back to the blame line. I mean, that's what blame is. We're holding someone else to account, that we hold each other responsible. We're back to the responsible word as well. We hold someone else, not ourselves, we hold someone else responsible to and for something. Even if we lose track of what we're actually holding each other responsible for, and I think that's often the case. Even if we're often hypocrites when it comes to our responsibility demands, asking for others to conscientiously follow codes of contact that we, as flawed human animals, also struggle to follow. Those people who come in and complain about their parents, they are not always better parents themselves. Um, whatever that means. I don't even really like using words like better parents. What does that mean? <laughs> Isn't it wonderful that at least we have some sort of expectation of ourselves and others that we continue through language to hold ourselves to account that we ask of ourselves and others to be responsible for themselves and to us even if we and they sometimes fuck things up or even quite often fuck things up even if most of our actions or decisions are mainly just adding extending or enlarging this this big pile of fuck uppery which we call our human heritage you know, holding ourselves and each other to account, even with all of that, it still sort of makes sense to us human beings at least. But more than making sense, it seems to be what we moral animals need to do. You know, does a bear shit in the wood? Yes. Does a bear hold another bear blameworthy? No. Does a human hold another human blameworthy? Yes. Framed in this way, I guess... I'm working at the moment on inhabiting my all too nervous system and trying not to blame other people every time that nervous system feels stressed, endangered, triggered, overwhelmed, which is, you know, um, which happens, <laughs> I'm sure as it does for you. So what's your deal when it comes to the blame game? If you've listened so far, you want to get in touch, you can do so by following the link on this episode to my podcast or sending me an email at steve wasserman all one word gmail.com i'd be interested in your thoughts but until then until next time take care stay alert no really do although with the nervous systems we have which are always pretty much staying alert that shouldn't be too much of a problem and of course enjoy your self ciao ciao